One of the pressing questions of our times, it is asked in different ways, certainly gets different answers, but one of the pressing questions of our time is, why do we love? Why, why do we love? Now, some would answer that question this way. Well, it's all about chemistry. It's all about neurons. It's all about just electronic signals going on in your brain. It's a product of evolution. It's a matter of adaptation. It's what was necessary for the species to be able to propagate itself. It has a, a function in that way, and that is why we love. Now, you may find that answer to be satisfactory. I would challenge you, though, to posit that answer as to why we love to a newlywed couple, or perhaps to young parents holding their newborn child for the first time and tell them, what you feel is chemistry, and that's it, like literal chemistry and electrons firing in your brain, and that's it. It's not really a very satisfactory answer, and the reason is because, frankly, it's, it's at best not true. The reason that we love, according to the Bible, the reason that we love, the reason that we feel something, at least, of an impulse and a desire to do so, is because we have been made in the image and according to the likeness of the God who loves, which means it is a fundamental part of being human. Any man, woman, or child to express or to receive love is part of what it means to be a human being. It's an essential part of our wiring in that sense, part of our design specs. But then that still begs the question. There's other questions that, that can be asked, even if you feel settled on the first question, why is it that we love? Other questions, you know, rightly can be spun out of that. Questions such as, well, not just why should I love, but why do I love, but why should I love? How do I love? What does it mean to love? Fair bit of confusion on, the, on all of that, on those scores. And not surprisingly, the Bible speaks to all of that. And actually, this text we're going to look at here together for just a few minutes addresses all of those in, in particular. In just this one brief passage, is something of a summary of the whole of the Bible's teaching on those questions. Uh, what does it mean to love? Why do, should we love? How can we love? All those things together. 1 John is where we are. 1 John chapter 4. Now, if you're trying to find that, it's actually not as hard as you may think. Go to the very end, not the maps Go to the very end, not quite the maps, Revelation, and go a few books to the left. First, second, third, John, you'll find it, right? It's sitting in there. This is the first of those three. First John, this is a letter written in the latter third of the first century by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples. By this time, he is a very, very old man, reflecting on these things in a unique way. Nonetheless, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Hear now God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, certainly we know on the authority and surety of the Scriptures that you are the God of love. And we as creatures made in your image according to your likeness, therein have to be also made to love ourselves. And at the same time, we struggle so much with this. We can, we, it's, it's, it's clear it's part of our design specs, but it, we, we just, it's, it at times feels so unnatural to do this natural thing. We live in a land and a culture and a time that is very confused with this question of love. And we feel the questions, we even have some of the questions, and we need to wrestle with the questions. Our very doubts, our very concerns, our own scars. Oh, we pray that you would speak. Thank you. Thank you for working as you did in our brother John, one of the very first of the band of the disciples so long ago. Thank you for working in him such that we can actually read what he wrote and wrestle with it and know that your spirit is at work even at this moment, in this place, at this time. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, you may have heard, you may have heard that there was a little football game played last week, Super Bowl 53. Uh, some 70,000-plus people gathered there in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, I'm going to do a little thought experiment with you. I'm the, I don't care who you were or weren't rooting for. I don't even care if you were watching. You're just going to have to run with my experiment, okay? Captive audience. Uh, so here's a thought experiment. Let's just say for a moment that somebody sprung tickets for you and you were at the game. Okay, so they bought you some of the cheap tickets, $2,500 $2, a pop, all right? So you are now in the nosebleed seats. That's what that would have bought you, that $2,500. You are in the nosebleed seats, but you're there. You are there. Now, here's the question. Looking to your left, your left, my right, looking to your right, how would you know, how would you be able to assess the people around you, and which side they were rooting for, whose team they were pulling for. How would you figure that out? How would you know? Well, you'd watch. You'd check out and see, well, what are they wearing? Hats, jerseys, sweatshirts, T-shirts, whatever. What colors? What, 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 what team's colors are they sporting, right? You're keep, you're, you have an eye for, oh, well, what points in the game are they cheering what close calls by the referees are they affirming or not so? 
As as the drama of the story of the game unfolds, do they seem up? Do they seem down? Without asking them, you you can measure these things. You can get a sense of who they're rooting for, who they're pulling for. There are certain, can I put it this way, marks. Marks. Okay? Now, moving from the Super Bowl to 1 John, here's a different question. How can you identify a true follower of Jesus? What are the marks of a disciple? What are the marks of a disciple of Jesus? That is one of the great burdens of the Apostle John as he was writing this letter that we know today as 1 John. How do you identify? What are the, 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 the discriminating marks of a true follower, a disciple of Jesus? Now, last week, those of you who were here may recall that what we were looking at, we were looking at the Gospel of John, looking at the Gospel of John and looking at the, considering the wondrous reality of God's love for us, okay? That's what we were looking at, John 3, last week. Now, this week is a follow-up to that, We're not so much considering, that we're building off of that, not so much considering the wondrous reality of God's love for us, but the absolute necessity of our love for one another. The absolute necessity of our love for one another. Now, you might be wondering, well, why is that important? Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's it's important, it's such a big deal, because the Lord has made clear what are the marks of His disciples. Now think about that. Jesus has not left us to guess. He's not left us to wonder what would it look like to be one of his followers, to be a disciple of Jesus. He has told us. He has told us what the marks are of his disciples. And one of those marks is our love for one another. So that makes that mark that alone, vital, absolutely vital, absolutely critical that we are grappling with that, that we are coming to grips with that, that we are wrestling with that and its implications for our lives and where we are in our understanding and, and the, the, the application of, of all of these things. Now, and again, this text, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, has says so much in terms of this one mark of what it looks like to be a true disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, this one mark, our love for one another, and at least these three things that you can, we can pull out of this in this passage. It's there in your outline, the insert, well, not the insert, but just part of your, your bulletin there. The first being, what is the pattern of love? That's the first thing. The second thing being, what is the, the purpose for love? And the third thing, what is the power for love? Yeah, I know, alliteration. Okay, it's some intentionality there. So, I, I, so what is the pattern? What does it look like? What is the purpose? What does God have in mind? And what is the power? How is it possible? How can it be? How can these things be? Let's look at these things in, in turn. So the first thing being, what is the pattern of love? What does it look like? The kind of love that John is speaking of here. And we should just be clear from the outset that this is important to talk about, to be clear on our definition of terms, because when we use the word love, we use it just scattered across the field in terms of different ways. I mean, we speak, we use the same word, I love blank, 
to describe a book I just read, a movie I just watched, a meal I just ate, a dog I just petted, or a friend I just embraced. It's kind of broad in the way we use that word. So we need to be clear on what John means when he is using this word, agape. Uh, agapao is the verb form there in, in the Greek. So 1 John chapter 4, just look at verses 9 through 10 with me just for a moment. We see something of this pattern of love immediately. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what do we learn here? Partly, at least we have to say, part of the pattern of love, what it looks like is it is truly concrete. It can be seen. It is not limited to just feeling. It's not to rule out feeling, but it is not limited to just feeling. And this, of course, is where uh, some of what John is saying here is a departure of so much of our modern way of thinking when it comes to love. We fall into love. You just can't help yourself, right? There's no intentionality to it whatsoever. And uh, we, we see that in our, the films that we watch and the, the literature that we read and the, the song lyrics of, of, our, of our times, uh, it, limiting love so, in so many cases to just feeling, which of course then, given, I mean, my feelings change in what I ate this morning on how much caffeine is in my bloodstream, on how much sleep I had last night, on what you know, someone did or didn't say to me five minutes ago, or who did or didn't cut me off in traffic on the way here. My feelings, your feelings, are unreliable and therefore unstable. And John is not talking about that. Again, not ruling it out, not saying it's bad, but that's not really where he's drilling down. He's not talking about a love that is limited to feeling. He's talking about a love that is expressed in action. I mean, after all, what does he say? This is a love that was made manifest, meaning it showed itself. It revealed itself. It was seen. It could be observed. It could be understood. And this is not the first time he has written about this. One of the unique things about the way John writes is how he circles through the course of 1 John, and he mentions something, and moves to something else, then he comes back. And he goes to something else, and then he comes back, and he's looping and building and building with each loop. And so let me just take you to the couple earlier loops where John is talking about this very thing of the concreteness of love. So in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, skipping over, here's another one of these loops. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then that takes you into this next loop that we find in 1 John 4. There is a concreteness to this pattern, the way we are to love, a concreteness to it. Now that said, just as clearly, 
it comes out here in verses 9 and 10, it is costly. The pattern of this love is not just concrete in that it, is, it is expresses itself in action. It is also cost involved. There is a, a giving of, of life. That's a positive way to put it. It is a, a giving of life, a life-givingness to this. You see it in verse 9. Uh, we saw that just a few minutes ago. Read it again. Just make it clear. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his, son, his only Son into the world so that, here it is, we might live through him. So John wants us to understand that the, the means towards our life, our living, is Jesus. Very clear there at the very end of, of verse 9. There's something redemptive. There's something restorative. There's something of a rescue here in this pattern of love, the life-givingness of this pattern that we're to walk in, we're to follow. Now, that life comes through death. That another may live, and one has to die. And that comes out here as well. As a, as a strong parallel that you see in verses 9 and 10. So let me just read verse 10 now. Again, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, yes, Jesus is the means of our life, but John is making it quite explicit now. It is Jesus' death that is the means of our life. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but he's speaking of the propitiation, meaning that for God's just wrath due upon us to be removed, it had to be poured out on him. The only means of our life is his death. And that is part of the pattern of this love, a costliness to it. Not just it being concrete, but there is a costliness to it. That others around us might live, something about us is going to have to die. That's what we see here in terms of this Christ follower pattern to love. It is concrete and it is costly. The Victoria Cross, some of you may be familiar with this. It's the uh, Canada's highest military honor, something very much akin to our uh, Medal of Honor. And the medals are rewarded, awarded for those acts of valor that are far above uh, the call of duty. Let me read you this uh, little blurb here about the first Victoria Cross awarded in World War II. Who got it and why? It was awarded to Company Sergeant Major John Robert Osborne. The Sergeant Major and his men were cut off from their battalion and under heavy attack. When the enemy came close enough, the Canadian soldiers were subjected to a concentrated barrage of grenades. Several times Osborne protected his men by picking up live grenades and throwing them back. But eventually, one fell in just the wrong position to pick up in time. With only a split second to decide, Osborne shouted a warning and threw himself on top of the grenade. It exploded, killing him instantly. The rest of his company survived that battle because of Osborne's selfless other-centeredness. That is life coming through death. And my friends, stay with me. We are called to do that every day, if you will, to jump on the grenade 
Every one of us, every day, everywhere we turn. And you ask, how? How? It's not that difficult to imagine. Parents staying up with that sick child late into the night for the third night in a row. That's what it looks like. You sit down with your friend who is suffering, struggling with something, and you're just listening, you pour yourself into, the, into that, even while you yourself are burdened with some other things and don't have an opportunity to unburden yourself in that. That is life coming through death. Or signing up, if I can just be this practical, signing up for the infant or toddler nursery so that that young mom in this room whose husband is deployed can have time to sit in this room without children crawling all over her and to experience and participate in this worship service. That is life coming through death, dying to self. It is looking at your own household budget and asking what adjustments can we make to meet the needs of this church. That is life coming through death. It can be as simple as any one of us, in particular the younger ones here, thinking of their brother or sister and the last donut in the box and saying, you can have it. That is life coming through death. A dying to self that others may live. That is the pattern. That is the pattern of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to love in the way that we have been loved. He has shown us what the marks of his followers are. And one of those marks is very clearly our love for one another. And that's the pattern. But what's the purpose? What's he have in mind? What's behind all that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Partly is it, a, it is a, what I'll call a consequence it is a consequence. Our love for one another is a consequence of something else. Let's look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me read that again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I say it's a consequence. By that, what I mean is our love for one another is not a precondition for his loving us. His love for us hinges on nothing but His grace. His love for us hinges on nothing but His... He is not waiting to see how we'll do. Will He love him? Will He love her? Will she love her? Will He love him? I mean, how will they treat... He's not waiting. He's not watching. And then that being the basis as to whether or not He'll love us. Our love for one another is a consequence, a response to, a reaction to, and it's the only right one, to his love for us. As we see here in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the first thing. So it's a, a consequence, but it's not just that. Our love for one another being a consequence of his for us. It is also an assurance our love for one another also operates as an assurance. Now, by that, John means two different things depending on where you are reading in his writings. Here's what I mean. Keep your thumb here in, in John 4. Let's go back to John's gospel. John 13. John chapter 13. This is the gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
John 13, this is uh, the night before Jesus was betrayed. This is immediately uh, after he has washed the disciples' feet. And in John 13, verses 34 and 35, this is what we read. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in terms of assurance, what Jesus is telling us here is that the watching world can be assured that we are his followers by whether or not we love one another. Or put another way, by seeing that we do love another, they, one another, they, the watching world, can be assured we actually are Jesus' disciples. So there's that level of assurance. But in John 4, he means something else when he speaks to this. Not uh, the, the world's being assured of our love for God because of their seeing our love for one another, but our being assured of our love for God because of our love for one another. It goes, it's something deep down into the level of, 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 of the need of, of, of assurance, of settledness, of, of, of comfort in the midst of worry and anxiety. Where do you see this? John 4, at least twice. Uh, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, get this, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So see, what do you see? What do you see? What do you know? If you have love for one another, what do you know? John tells us, God abides in you. God abides in you, and his love is perfected in you. Or going back to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So what does this mean? My friends, if, if you have any impulse, any, any desire, any effort you're putting into this at all, however incomplete or imperfect. Do you know where that came from? Jesus. At work within you. The invisible God making himself visible and his love for you coming to completion, its purpose being realized, even if in some poor way, now that can be of such comfort and assurance. Take heart, take courage in the midst of your worry, in the midst of your, your heartache and wondering, oh my goodness, does he still love me? Could this even be true? If there'd be a flicker of flame. Yes. Yes. See, part of the purpose of his calling us to love one another. Yes, part of it is a consequence of his love for us, but also an assurance of our love for him. And in this we see yet again, yet again, for the umpteenth time in the Bible, how his purposes, his ways are so much higher, so much greater, grander, better than ours. I think of light pollution. 
just here off the top of my head. And, and, and you know what I mean by light pollution is when you go out at night and you want to stargaze, but you can't because of uh, artificial light around you, whether it's street lights or headlights or you know, parking lots or wh- whatever, is, is hazing up, is, I was going to say eclipsing, that's not quite right, but is obscuring your ability to see the natural light up in the sky, the stars. But sometimes, right, sometimes even in a metropolitan area, for whatever, you know, the atmospheric conditions are just right, so that still you can see. You can see what there was to see. You can see what there was to see, what was there all along. It was so much more than you thought. And that's God's ways, his purposes for us, so much greater, so much more wondrous and amazing. You see, when he calls us to love one another, it is not just so we can be nice, not just so that we can get along. I mean, it's good to get along. I'm not saying let's, you know, Don Wing, where are you? You know, the, pu- the pugilist in the room. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not calling for that. But he calls us to love one another, again, as a consequence of his love for us and as an assurance of our love for one another. I mean, our love for him. Our love for one another is an assurance of our love for him. So that then has to make this, at the very least, part, a, a fuel for prayer, a matter for prayer. Oh, Lord, would you please help me, help me to grow in my knowledge and understanding and embracing of your great love for me that it would then overflow more greatly into my love for those around me. Would you help me breathe it in that I would be able to breathe it out? And in the dark night, 3 a.m., and I'm wondering, do you love me? Whose am I? Who am I? Oh, would you bring to my mind the wondrous, amazing work that you are doing, even in my poor heart to love others, that is evidence and assurance to me that, yes, I am yours, and yes, you are at work in my life. Oh, would you do this? Oh, would you do this in greater and greater measure? Again, our Lord has given us, he's made clear these what it is are, that are the marks of his followers, his disciples. And one of those, one of those is our love for one another. All right, fine. Thirdly, how do we do this? I mean, let's be honest. If you've heard anything that John has said thus far, and you've ever tried to love to any degree at all, you know you, you actually can't do this. If, if, if honesty be allowed to reign for just a split second. We can't do this. Not in and of ourselves. So that moves us from pattern to purpose to power. How can we love? And we see that in this passage as well. Implicitly, explicitly, it, it is here. Part of it is it's two stages. Part of it is embracing the news. Beginning at the beginning, verse 7, I read it earlier, just come back to it again, it's part of what's implicit here, what would just, just think what he has to be in, in this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, which means, put your logical thinking caps on now, 
For me to love, for anyone to love in the way that's being described here, you have to be born of God. There has to have been, back to John 3, this spiritual rebirth, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in your life such that you are enabled and persuaded to put your full weight, hope, and trust on the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. You have embraced the news. You have embraced the news. And unless you have, you cannot love according to that pattern and for that purpose without beginning with that level of power having embraced the gospel. You have to have been born of God. It's it's quite clear there in verse 7. But there's something else that we can say here. Not just that once for all beginning but something that continues, something that continues, uh, daily so. So not just the initial embracing of the news, but an ongoing abiding in the Lord. I'm just lifting the language right out of uh, 1 John here. This ongoing, continual abiding in the Lord. For starters, His abiding in us. His indwelling us. His empowering us. There in verse 12, we read it earlier, come back to it. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It is only through his indwelling. It is only by the Holy Spirit, if you will, taking up residence within us. As you see with the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple, the presence of God there. And Paul uses that language twice in 1 Corinthians to describe us as a body, as the temple of the Spirit, and us as individuals, as temples of the Spirit. It is only by God's indwelling us, this, His abiding in us, that we can love in this way. That's part of what John is saying. But it's actually a mutual abiding. Remember John 15 and the vine and the branches and Jesus There's such beautiful imagery here and mystery in all of this. I mean, but Jesus told us in John 15, the only way, hey, you branch, that you're going to bear any fruit is if you abide, stay connected to, find your life in continually, not just one day, every day, not just part of the day, all through the day, in everything. You have to abide in the vine. Well, that's alluded to in verse 8. I've been dancing around this. It's now time to get to it. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's funny how you can get hit on the, like, hit on the head like with a club by somebody else with that phrase. God is love! Here's what that means. That verse does not mean God is only love. He's a whole lot more. Nor is it saying, as our Eastern mystic friends would have us believe that love is God. That's not what John said. What he is saying here is that love is an essential characteristic of who God is such that everything he does is out of love. Everything. In some way, shape, or form. So to know him to brush up against him, to have any contact with him, to be in relationship with him, is to encounter the God of love. And you cannot help but be affected by that. You cannot help but be impacted by that. 
to be in relationship with the God of love. There's our abiding in him. Biographers will tell you when they do deep study, a deep dive into the lives of great men and women in history, you know, some of the great influential ones, right? That, that there are certain people that you just can't, when you're around them, you can't help but be affected by them. They just rub off on you. There's something contagious about their personalities and their influence. There's people like that today and all through history, great men and women. How much more so their creator? How much more so the great God of heaven and earth? The God of love having an impact, a transformational impact on those who know him, on those who are in his presence. So here's the question. How do you experience this power to love? By knowing the God of love. How do you know the God of love? Just as you grow in relationship with anyone else. Time. This is not a complicated series of questions and answers here. Time with him in his word. He has spoken, we need to listen. Time with him in his word and responding to him in prayer. Communing with him. Time with his people. Time with his people, not buying into the lie that we can do this on our own. Time spent here. Now, this is preaching to the choir, but time spent here. Not just in personal, private worship, but corporate communal worship. Time in here. And can I say, time out there. Time in service to him. Where we find ourselves stretched beyond our comfort zones and then thrust into dependency upon him all the more, getting to know him. We're talking about the marks, the marks of his followers. And one of those marks is growing in our love for one another. Now, how do we do that? By getting to know the God of love. That is how we come to experience the power to love, by knowing the God of love. And with this, apologetics. The heavy word, spend too much time on this, but in essence, you can define apologetics as the defense of the Christian faith, giving reasoned, thoughtful answers to people's questions and their struggles, in particular the ones of our day and our time. And by the way, that's not optional for, for anyone in this room. Some of us may be more or less skilled in that, but all of us, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, that every one of us needs to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus. So in some way, all of us need to wrestle with such questions of the problem of evil. Reliability of the Bible. The relation of faith and science. I'm just picking the ones that are the big ones, you know, today. And a list of others. We need to be prepared to engage in those things in a thoughtful, respectful way. There is, however, one issue within all of that that it doesn't matter how good you are at any of that. If we don't have this, none of that means anything. Now you might be wondering, whoa, what in the world is that? You just really raised the, you know, love. It doesn't matter. It has no bearing. You're actually doing more harm 
as a brilliant apologist who is loveless than if you were a lousy apologist but with love. I'm not saying you should be a lousy apologist. <laughs> not my point. So you've heard me speak in this direction on this point before. I'm going to do it again. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest apologists, defenders of the Christian faith in the 20th century, wrote a whole bunch of books. And one of his smaller ones is called The Mark of the Christian. I highly commend it to you. It's a short book. You sit down and read it in a couple hours. Tops. The Mark of the Christian. And in that little book, Schaefer makes the case that love is the final apologetic. That's his phrase. Love is the final apologetic. Meaning that none of the rest of that matters if we don't have love. What, did first, what we read from 1 Corinthians 13 earlier is the same thing there. You say, but what about doctrine? What about orthodoxy? Don't we have to get it right? Of course we have to get it right. Don't put words in my mouth I'm not speaking, or in Schaefer's mouth. To say that love is the final apologetic is not to say that doctrine and orthodoxy are not important. It is to say that they are important but not sufficient. They are important but not sufficient. Without love, we have nothing. Think with me. How are we going to reach a culture that cares nothing for truth, that has no categories for orthodoxy and doctrine? How will we reach that culture? By a living demonstration of the reality of the gospel through visible, costly love that shows itself in a distinct way in how we do differences and conflict and how we shoulder one another's burdens. That is the only way this dark world is going to see light and this dying culture is going to see life is through love. And Jesus said it. Jesus said it. He has made crystal clear the marks of his disciples, and one of those is our love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, it is Valentine's Day week, and lots of attention is being given to the topic of love, and we would be fools to say that there wasn't truth in the celebration of relationship and romance because you give that to us as a good gift to be stewarded well. But at the same time, if that's all we're talking about, we've missed it. We pray that you would help us have eyes and ears to engage in conversation with people around us. This very week, as love is in the air, your love for us, Oh, would you ground us in all that we are, do, think, and speak in your love for us that we would then be impelled and enabled to love one another. May we grow in these things. Challenge our hearts. Comfort our hearts. Let's grow in these things. We pray in your name.